Welcome to For the Love of Brantford, a podcast about the evolving story of our community. This podcast is for everyone who holds a place in their heart for our beautiful city. I'm Nathan Etherington, the Program and Community Coordinator for the Brant Historical Society. I'll be sharing some information from the Brant Historical Society archives and other sources to share some history that you may not have learned in school. And I'm Andy Samwell, president of the Eagle Place Community Association, and I'm passionate about community. And for me, you'll hear about what's happening in our community now. And I'm Zila Ozels from the Brantford Public Library. I'll be speaking with experts to get an idea of where our community is going. If you have any questions or comments that you would like to share with us, fill in our feedback form on the podcast website at brantfordlibrary.ca slash FLB. We hope you join us each episode as we learn from each other and explore Brantford's past, present, and future. Hello, and welcome to episode seven of For the Love of Brantford, where we explore the evolving story of our community. In this episode, we discuss flooding in the city of Brantford. I'll be talking about the Christmas flood of 1893 and when the Grand River overflowed its banks in 1974. And I speak with Dave Carroll about the most recent flood in Brantford in 2018. And finally, I speak with Brody from Environment Hamilton about climate change. I think overall, this was a very interesting episode to kind of pull together because we have such a wide range of stories and information that we're sharing. Yeah, it's interesting because like, Flooding happens regularly. There's something that's called a return period. So often you'll hear them say this is a one in 50 year storm or a one in 100 year storm. And so most of our infrastructure is designed for a one in 100 year storm. So when you get a one in a thousand year storm, nothing's good, nothing good is going to happen to your infrastructure, right? Um, so it's really important to think about these types of events that can happen and how they might impact your life. The difference too is when we talk about these one in a thousand year storms or whatever, a thousand years ago, at least here in Canada, we didn't have the same structures in place that we do now. So the impact that that storm is going to have or that weather event is going to have is going to be so different than even what happened a thousand years ago. In the flood that I'll be talking about, one of the causes of the flood was that we built structures and narrowed the channel of the river. So when it's got a smaller uh, path to go through, it rises uh, faster and then can flood. I never really thought about it that way. Um, I find it interesting that we're talking about all of this flooding um, and we're just heading into Christmas and you're going to be talking about the Christmas flood. Pretty excited to hear about that. And I think it's actually like kind of timely too with what's happening in BC. You know, it's similar for those people. This is their kind of Christmas flood. We planned this episode before that event happened in BC. We planned this episode in the summer. <laughs> That's right. Yeah. yeah. So it's it's all just kind of lining up. Uh, but in kind of the conversation that I have later in this episode with Brody, these kind of weather events, you know, we should be expecting to see them more and seeing impacts on our communities because of them such as the flooding that we had in 2018 and other ones that may come in the future. The problem is people sometimes confuse weather and climate, right? So weather can happen over a very short time period, but that doesn't necessarily mean that it's indicative of climate. So climates are, climate averages are based on 30-year averages. So in order for something to happen to shift that average a lot, like, like big things have to happen, like climate change in order, in order to drive those things. But then it's very also very small and measurable. So even over the course of decades, it's maybe like a, a tenth of a degree or you know an extra 10 millimeters or 20 millimeters of precipitation, which you don't really see that much you know, over the 30 years. But when you add up hundreds and hundreds of years altogether, that's where climate change really starts to happen. Other than Mandy, because we're not going to steal your content for later in the show, but has anyone been involved in a flood? I, I haven't. No, I mean, I was in Brantford when that flood was happening and 
when I went to go move my car, the water was actually creeping towards my car. <laughs> I, I, I hadn't realized it because I was in the library when we closed the library. So that was my only experience with it. Between 1974 and 2018, have there been any other floods in the Brantford area? Like, I don't think any super major floods. Another flood that actually happened, there was a big flood in, in 1954, or a big water event in 1954. It actually exceeded the 1974 flood, but because the Grand River watershed wasn't set up in the same way with all the measurement stations, it, it's like unknown if that's where it actually was. It's, it's more like an estimated value, but it was um, estimated to be more water than the 1974 flood. And in the uh, 2018 flood, I'm pretty sure we overtopped the 1974 flood as well. We sure have a lot of flooding. Flooded every year, pretty much in the early days. <laughs> Oh, really? Before? Oh, okay. That's interesting. But then we put the structures in place, right? Is that what? Yeah. But now they're also contributing to (laughs) further flooding. Yeah, they can. And and I remember uh, Dave Newman uh, pointed this out uh, one time after the flood. He was talking about uh, dikes and the dike structure. He was like, Mm -hmm. dikes are not fail-proof. Dikes do fail, right? And you saw that in also in BC, right? There were some parts that weren't maintained. And because and of New that, Orleans. And New Orleans, yeah, the same thing, right? The dikes weren't maintained to that standard. And as a result, that's where the water comes in. And as soon as there's like a gap, right? Then it's just, it's gravity and water just floods everywhere. And, it, and it's very devastating. I'm curious how the Christmas flood impacted Eagle Place residents. Okay, Nathan, you explained to us in planning this series that you have a lot that you can say about this subject. Can you tell us why? Traditionally, people working in museums have arts degrees from a university or a museum's certificate studies from a college. I went to university as a scientist and focused on earth science and geography. Geography can be defined as the study of the physical earth systems and how human activity is affected by resources, industry, population, and land use. So this is the lens I bring to my study of history as a study of geography over time. And I geolocate these stories that allow me to organize a vast amount of information in a simple way. When it comes to earth science, I took classes like earth history to tell the 4.6 billion year history of how the earth has changed. In the show notes, I've included a copy of the superficial geology map and underneath Brantford on the map, it has uh, 54C indicating that we have the Salina formation of the upper Silurian age about 425 million years ago. At this time, Southern Ontario would have been placed over the equator with a warm shallow sea similar to the Caribbean today. Moving forward in time, we look at sediments to understand how they were eroded, transported, and deposited across this landscape into something we recognize today. So many of us have probably heard about the last ice age. When did that happen and how did it affect what we see around in Brantford? Well, during the last ice age, Toronto was under two to three kilometers of a massive ice sheet about 18,000 years ago. As the earth warmed, this massive amount of ice started melting around 15,000 years ago which in turn would have produced a lot of water and made something called spillway channels. I've included a Pleistocene geology map in the show notes, which showed these spillway channels in yellow. On the map, one of these runs from Colburn West with its banks of this channel, going from roughly Oak Hill Drive by the airport, all the way to Mount Vernon, a distance of about five kilometers. All this water from the spillway channels then emptied into a massive lake named Lake Worm by geologists. The transition from the river to lake often produces deltas like the Mississippi does at New Orleans today. A similar delta formed in the Bramford area with the delta descending to the lake bed when you go down numerous hills like Dundas to West Street, West Street from the cemetery down to Henry Street, and the tobogganing slope at Arrowdale. Wow, that's a lot of water that would have been in Brantford. 
How did this create the floodplains that we see today? On the Pleistocene geology map, this is represented in the brown colors and numbers 12 and 14. The number 12s can represent something that we call river terraces. A river terrace is a fragment of a former river bank that now stands above the present day floodplain. The best way to identify a river terrace is by noting the change in topography. If you were standing in the middle of the river and start walking towards the shore, there's a small, steady, and almost unnoticeable increase in elevation. When you reach the riverbank, there's a large sudden hill or slope that then levels off to a flat portion of the next old riverbed. The best example I can find of a series of river terraces in Brantford is taking St. Paul Ave from Grand River Ave to the hospital on Terrace Hill. The old flat riverbed extends from Grand River Avenue to Wilkes Street. Then there is an old river bank uh, between Wilkes and Burwell Streets that levels off onto an older riverbed that then slowly ascends towards Terrace Hill. Turning right up Terrace Hill, you go up another riverbank, which also formed at the bottom of the old delta when it was a lake. Okay, enough about geology. Let's talk about some of the floods that we have recorded in history. Well, one of Brantford's most spectacular floods would have to be the Christmas flood of 1893. Improvements to the Warren Bridge in 1877 narrowed the river, meaning that less water could get through and would result in flooding, particularly south of the Warren Bridge, which originally was a flat island in the middle of the Grand River, pictured on the 1875 bird's eye map of the area. On Boxing Day, the newspapers start reporting on the Christmas Day flood that started in West Brantford. Flooding had been reported earlier in the week in Agricultural Park, but had receded until about 1 a.m. on Christmas Eve. When residents of West Brant woke up, Colburn Street West was a raging torrent of floodwaters. The expositor reported on the damage to many homes, one of which was the house of Mr. Herbert Johnson at the Coal and Woodyard and also an ice house which fell in. A part of the cellar walls, in consequence of the action of the water, fell in, and the house was in a very unstable condition. In the wood yard, the piles of wood were torn down, and a considerable amount of it was carried away. I'm a reporter from the expositor. Flooded out Mr. Cullum. Well, I should say so. I went to bed in my house on Jack Street on Sunday night about 11 o'clock, and everything was all right. My brother came in a little later and accidentally letting my legs over the side of the bed. I jumped up and had two legs out in the icy water in my nightdress and getting a match, lighted a lamp. My wife's and children's clothes and indeed everything in the house was floating about the room. The water was right up to the bed. My wife was so sick, I did not know what to do. So I went to the window to holler when I saw Mr. Calder, the chief of police. Fire department, you mean? Is it? Well, I thought he was in the police. I called to him and he said, I'll be there in a minute. And sure enough, he came waiting up to his waist in water and in his bare feet. He carried the wife out of the window to the wagon, him standing in the road with the water up to the horse's belly. Then he came back and carried the children out and I waited out myself. My wife and I wish to express our very warmest thanks to Mr. Calder for his great service. Let the neighbors speak for themselves. I'm another reporter from the Expositor. Well, Mr. Taylor, how did the flood on Sunday night and Monday affect you? Inquired a reporter as he walked into Mr. Taylor's house at 124 Erie Avenue. He and his wife were busily engaged taking up wet carpets, moving furniture, and cleaning the house. The floors were covered with a slimy substance left on by the water, and the house in general showed every sign of a heavy flow of water through it. Well, you can see by the looks of things, it's left us in a rather bad chaser. About two o'clock in the morning, we were awakened by the neighbors, and there was no water in the house at all. But in a few minutes, the whole floor was covered. And shortly after that, a full 16 inches deep. Did you have to leave your house? Yes, we had to either get out or be drowned. My wife was taken out in a boat and paddled by John Lamb, and I was taken out on a raft. The damage? Oh, I suppose it will be between $100 and $150. The fruit and other vegetables in the cellar will be spoiled, and the carpets and furniture will be slightly damaged. At Eagle Place, notwithstanding the high water yesterday, a marriage took place on Huron Street. The minister and guests being taken over in boats. 
wow, a wedding on Christmas Day in the middle of a flood? Can you tell us about a more recent flood? Well, in 1974, the Grand River had one of its most epic and memorable floods. In the first 15 days of May, the precipitation in the watershed was greater than or equal to the monthly normal rainfall, with most of the rain falling between May 9th and 15th. The Conestoga Dam had recorded 3.43 inches compared to 2.63 inches for the entire month. On May 16th to 17th, the entire watershed received an additional two inches of rain with localized pockets of three to four inches in the northern edge of the watershed. The Conestoga Dam had an additional 2.3 inches of rain. Before this rainfall, the soil was already saturated and the reservoirs were near capacity and high river flows were already being reported. The additional rainfall cannot be absorbed by the ground, and all the rainfall essentially ran off into the water bodies. Flooding was reported throughout the Grand River and its tributaries, from Drayton, Alora, and Guelph, down through Cambridge, Brantford, Caledonia, and Cayuga. So what were the specific effects in Brantford? Well, the rain occurred on the 16th and 17th. The effects were not fully felt until the night of the 18th. The flooding in Brantford was one of the worst in its history. The Grand River reached a peak flow of 61,900 cubic feet per second, and the river rose to a height of 18.2 feet. Around 10.30 on the 17th, the dike gave way in Homedale with flooding along Grand River Avenue near the waterworks. Water was also collecting along Greenwich Street along the Old Canal, a section of Newport Road was also washed out. The worst was in the Burkett Lane and River Road area. In the Royal Commission on Flooding final report, they note, quote, the Brent County Board of Education had built a new building in the floodplain against the advice of the GRCA and was forced to move out equipment and furniture. About 100 families were also forced to evacuate. There must have been lots of water. How did the city of Brantford respond? Well, the city of Brantford declared a state of emergency on the morning of May 18th, when the water treatment plant was no longer able to operate. The breach in the canal dike overwhelmed flooding pump generators, and contaminated water entered the reservoirs. Water tank trunks were transported around the city for residents to pick up water. Water was partially restored by 9 a.m., and residents were advised to boil their water, and a state of emergency was lifted by noon. Residents continued to boil their water until the following day. The sewage treatment plant held up much better and continued its operation unabated throughout the crisis. Hundreds of basements were flooded, leaving a mucky grime behind that needed to be cleaned up. The total loss was $425,988 to residents and $24,000 in municipal dike repairs. The flood resulted in the province of Ontario starting the Royal Commission on Flooding to investigate and propose 21 recommendations, including flood mapping, hydrometeorological instruments, and, quote, that no further building or development be allowed within a regional floodplain. If the building or development does occur, the property owner should be required to sign a hold harmless agreement to be registered on title that neither the municipality, the GRCA, and the province of Ontario could be held liable towards any flood damage to new works, end quote. Yet this continues to happen in the floodplain today. In this episode, I chat with Dave Carroll about his experience with the 2018 flood. Hi, welcome, Dave. Can you introduce yourself for the folks listening at home? Hi, I'm Dave. Hi, I'm uh, Dave Carroll. I'm uh, Eagle Placer, um, uh, one of the pastors at Freedom House Church, uh, host Brant Life uh, uh, show on Rogers TV, and I uh, just love this city, and uh, it's good to be able to see you, Mandy, and I know you do uh, great stuff within the city, both in your like professional world and your volunteer world, and so it's a pleasure to be able to chat Brantford with you today. Well, I'm excited to have you here to kind of reminisce about the the ice jam and the flood that we had back in 2018. Um, could you tell me a little bit about where you were at that time and what that was like for you? Has it been that long, 2018? It's I really... looked it up today. Yeah, I looked it up today. 
it feels like a lifetime ago with uh, what we've been through in the last year or so. But yeah, so I I, I remember the day very well, like uh, most people um, in Eagle Place do, really, because it was I I, I got up and uh, I I kind of for whatever reason I, I I looked I got up and opened up my door and looked down the road and and uh, well I actually I, I looked at my phone and I saw that the school. Princess Elizabeth, my kids were going in, in uh, at least some of them in elementary school at the time, and they said that it was closed for a flood. And I thought, a flood? I don't remember any floods uh, when I went to bed. And uh, so I poked my head down uh, out, and I, I was still in my pajamas. And I'm only maybe five or six houses between where I live uh, and the river. And I walked down to the river, and there was somebody um, from uh, Grand River or Parks and Rec or something that was down there. And and uh, and he looked at me and he said, "You're gonna get evacuated." I said, "What?" And I was still groggy. I was I was literally in my pajamas, and I don't make a habit of walking to the river in my PJs all that often. But but I did that day, and uh, and I saw this <laughs> something like I'd never seen before. And I saw the the, the ice and how it was creeping up. And I, and I looked at him and I said, "Is that for real? We're going to get evacuated?" He said, "Oh, I think so." And I went, okay, that wasn't the news I was expecting to hear. And I, I walked back and said to my wife and kids, I said, the guy at the end of the road says we're about to get evacuated and school's closed for a flood. And you could just see everyone's face, look at me going, what are you talking about? Next thing I knew, I mean, it was like it was like the military had come into action and I, I, I my front door was open. And the screen door was open, and I and I saw people in fatigues going up and down Strathcona, and I thought, "What?" And I went out, and they're like, "Get your stuff, get out, time to get out." And it was, I, it was such a a bizarre feeling, wasn't it? Where it was it like, was like the apocalypse, yeah, for sure, yeah. It was like, it felt like a movie. Like, is this for real? We're, we're leaving the house. And I, I don't know about you. I don't, I don't know what, what you what went through your head. But I mean, for us, it's like, you, you don't have time to process stuff. And you're like, get to the basement. Where's the photo albums? What do we put up? What do we put upstairs? Like you start this weird evaluation, wasn't it? Of like, oh my goodness. If it's if there's a flood, what do we do? That's funny you said that. Because that's exactly the things I moved to. It was the photo albums and things like that that couldn't be replaced. I put them upstairs as high as I could and, and that kind of thing. And yeah, like I looked out my door too and there was police going down the street knocking on people's doors and I'm, I was home alone and I'm thinking, what is even happening right now? And, and they came to the door and they're like, you know, you're going to need to evacuate. And I'm like, okay, but do I have to go now? <laughs> and he's like, well, yeah, yeah, you should. And I'm like, okay, but I'll go when I see the water coming. Cause I'm not as close as you. So I was further away and we actually didn't end up evacuating. We ended up staying and we ended up just borrowing a generator from my, my stepfather and we stayed, but we didn't have the, obviously the gas and the hydro got cut off mm -hmm. and stuff like that, but we stayed. Well, we, we, we packed up the car and we, we put everything we could in, in, in high ground and we went, okay, I guess this is what we're doing. And uh, my parents live in the north end of town. And we said, you know, gave them a knock and go, guess what? <laughs> we're moving in for a few days. And so I, we, we, we got everything settled and, you know, the kids are, you know, quite upset and understandably because you don't really know what what's happening. This is a bit of a traumatic experience. And, and it took me about an hour of sitting at my parents' kitchen table, refreshing uh, uh, internet stories to be able to go, what is going on? And I thought, I'm going back in. So everyone's in, everyone's in safe ground. And I know that they had said that don't go back in, but I was like, I got to go down and see what's happening. Like I, I, I just need to be able to go and see. And so I went and took a peek and the, the rest of the day was actually quite a fascinating day for me too, because um, I started chatting with Patty Berardi over at Rogers TV mm -hmm. and we were like, boy, isn't that, that's, that's quite, that's quite something. And, and she said, Hey, let, this is what local TV is for. Let's, if you're, if you, if you've been evacuated and you got nothing to do today, 
you want to do a flood special. And so we, 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 we went and um, connected with um, Mayor Chris Friel. He was, you know, set up in this, the, the command post at the fire station. And he, he let us come in and, and, and chat with him about what was going on. Uh, I believe the, the premier w- was, was talking about coming in and we went down and we were talking with uh, residents who were watching the ice flows. And some of them were telling us stories about um, when, when they were young, there being ice jams and them trying to shoot the ice jams in canoes. And I'm like, you guys are nuts. And, but it was, we, we put together this really neat, like special that kind of captured as the day was going this weirdest day ever in Brantford. And it was, and it was, uh, I mean, I'll never forget it. That's for sure. Yeah. No, that was that was crazy. And it was sounds like you got to be right in the thick of it, which is kind of cool. Um, right at the in the command center and all of that stuff. So that's pretty exciting. Um, does is there still a link to that special that you guys did, do you think? Oh, it's possible. It's possible. I can I, I can go and try and track it down. The the the, the one of so we were we were out of the house, I think two nights uh, before um, they had let us back in. Um, I, I stayed in the cold uh, the night afterwards. Uh, it just worked out better to go back down and and it didn't seem like anything was going to happen. But then I got um, I got a call from uh, Phil McCollman, who is our, our MP at the time. And um, at the time, uh, a guy named Andrew Shear was running. He was it was he was. He, running in, in the federal election to become prime minister. And well, he was coming through town and Phil says, he said, Dave, Andrew Shear's coming through town and he'd like to be able to meet with a resident who's been evacuated. Would you be up for, for him coming by the house? And I said, I called my wife and I said, Hey, the guy who might be the prime minister might be coming over to say hi and have some tea in my, in, in the cold living room. And she's like, clean the place. If he's coming over, at least straighten up the house. You know, we left like a, like a tornado. Everything was <laughs> so at least straighten the place before he came. And, uh, and he, he didn't end up coming over to the house, but actually met with him down by the river, him and Phil and, you know, looked out and I told them the, the, the great evacuation tale of 2018. And it was a surreal couple days for sure. And uh, thankfully, thankfully nothing happened, but it was close. It was, yeah. it was, it was nip and tuck there. Yeah, it was close. And I mean, a lot of people were affected for us. It was, um, we were in the midst of our uh, splash pad fundraising campaign so actually the day that they came around and turned the gas and the hydro back on was the same day that we were set to have our splish splash concert at the Brant community church. And so I was saying to Dave Newman, I'm like, do you think we should cancel? You know, yeah. like, are people really going to be up for this after, you know, being yeah. evacuated and maybe getting to return home today and all of that. And he said, no, let's just do it. And I, and actually it turned out really good. Lots of folks still came out and supported. Like I was pretty excited to see how many people still came out after all of, all of what everybody had been through. And I think that that just speaks to the strength of Eagle Place, right? Like, and the folks that live here. So that was one of, you know, these, these kind of events, you know, and, and thankfully we can look back and it turned into nothing seriously tragic happening, you know, Um, but I remember being down by by the the walking trail and the footbridge that you know still you know the the, the bridge it's still still not open or whatever and yeah. and I I remember standing by it hearing the creaking and the and the you you could just you could almost feel the pressure push being pushed against the, this bridge and um it was it was quite something but again the community was 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 out was interacting with each other those who had stayed uh, you know during and then afterwards everybody you know uh, once everyone was allowed back the walking paths were were pretty a pretty busy place because everyone was out there you know sharing stories about what happened on that day and looking at the damage and just you know going oh my goodness all the all the trees and all the damage and but it was this Again, once again, a a thing that was almost almost a tragedy, but turned into as just a shared experience that I think actually probably brought neighbors together um, even even more than not because it was something that we all experienced together and became a a, a topic of conversation between neighbors for quite some time. Yeah, 
For sure. I actually, after, after it was all over and we were able to be back home, um, SC Johnson actually um, gave a whole bunch of cleaning supplies and stuff like that. So I had the opportunity to go around and distribute that to the neighbors and the folks within Eagle Place and got to hear a lot of the stories of, of how it went for them. And everybody was saying that it wasn't so much the water that came over the wall or anything like that. It was what came up through their, um, through the drains in their basements. Oh no. That, that was where the where the water actually had come from for a lot of people. I that yeah. was interesting because I wouldn't have thought of that, right? I was thinking of the water that was going to come over, but it was more than that. Certainly a reminder of the power of the of, of the river that's there. And you know, I think I think for uh, for a lot of different reasons, people in Brantford take the Grand River for for granted. We forget away what a beautiful river it is, what a gift it is to be able to to have it right in our our city and for us in Eagle Place in in a, in our neighborhood. Mm-hmm. But also, my goodness, the power that exists in in a river like the Grand River, and sometimes. You know, you, you, people forget about how strong of a current it can be at different times of the year. Um, and uh, and unfortunately, that has led to different different tragedies over the years of people just not realizing how powerful a river it can be at the right time. So it's a it's an amazing thing. It's great to be able to have. But we also have to remember to, re- to respect the waters. That's a very good point. There's, yeah, it's, it is beautiful. And there has been a lot of things that have happened that haven't been so good, but um, thankfully everything turned out good with the flood for everybody, mostly everybody. I can't think of anybody that had anything <laughs> bad happen. So I'm no. glad, that. but that was one of those experiences that you're like, oh my gosh, is this even really happening when that happens? So it's it'll new. be something that we tell our grandkids. <laughs> I remember the great almost flood of 2018. Apparently there's been more than one flood. So there's going to be when we, when this, uh, on this episode, Nathan will be talking about some of the other floods that have happened as well too. So it's happened more than once. <laughs> well, our floods, the best flood. You tell <laughs> that. Course, to... it happened yeah. To yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Oh gosh. All right. Well, thanks so much for chatting with me about the flood today, Dave. My pleasure, Mandy. Great to talk to you. I spoke with Brody Robinmeyer about the impacts of climate change and what individuals can do in their own communities to work on mitigating climate change. Hi, can you please introduce yourself and tell us a little bit about what you do? Hello, my name is Brody Robinmeyer. Uh, I work for Environment Hamilton. I'm a project manager for an initiative called Friendly Streets for Black, Indigenous, and Racialized Communities. I'm someone who's been involved with a few other kind of volunteer organizations, um, such as Climate Reality Leaders and uh, Ocean Bridge, and uh, some affiliations to some other organizations like 350. Uh, So in February 2018, the Grand River flooded and Brantford was put into a state of emergency. Luckily, this hasn't happened again in Brantford since, um, but we are seeing other cities right now. We're seeing a lot in BC, throughout Canada, undergoing these kind of like once in a lifetime weather incidents. Could you tell us a little bit about how climate change is contributing to these kinds of incidents? Yeah, um, I'm not aware of all of the ways that climate change is impacting these kind of uh, events, but some of the trends that I'm aware of is that there is greater likelihood of intense weather events or extreme weather events just due to some of these shifts in larger global weather patterns or some of these larger systems like the Gulf Stream, the Jet Stream, these other sorts of things. I guess I just as an example, like one of the things that we've seen uh, locally here's with the Great Lakes, some changes in the water levels of the Great Lakes themselves. I, I mean, I was curious about this with regards to climate change, you know, whether the lakes were on average uh, getting lower uh, or if they were on average getting higher in the water levels. And from the, the limited research I've done, it seems as if it's not clear that they're going in one direction or another, but that there's greater um, sort of fluctuations in those levels that that's something that I is kind of concerning because it means that you know it's going to have all kinds of impacts in terms of having too much wa- water at, 
in some locations for times when we don't want it and too little in others when we do. I think it's interesting that you mentioned that just because like, I mean, I haven't done any research about this, but this summer was a very rainy summer. Whereas last summer, I remember it was like very hard to get enough rain for our garden. So I don't know if that's related, but it's definitely like you talked about fluctuations. That's a huge fluctuation, like almost no rain to a very, very rainy summer. Yeah. And um, just off of that point, it made me think of uh, one of the big trends that I I think uh, some of your listeners may have heard of already is with the rising atmospheric temperatures, there is a a greater capacity to retain moisture in the atmosphere. And this is leading to some of these, forget what they were calling them, almost like rivers in the sky, just these massive sort of rain bomb events, because this warmer atmosphere is able to hold more of this moisture, that when it comes down, you've got this really, really heavy rain, which also related to the, you know, when it hits, what is it hitting? If it's hitting pavement, if it's hitting bare earth, if it's hitting uh, treed canopy, this is really important as well. And we're, we're seeing a lot of issues with runoff, whether that be kind of turbidity in streams as soil or nutrients, which becomes kind of pollution uh, through, from farmers' fields, or whether it's salt from city streets and these combined sewage overflow events, which is becoming... Uh, a very, very significant issue all around the the country. That's another kind of concerning uh, dynamic that we're that we're witnessing. Yeah, it's really kind of those compounding factors that you already mentioned, where it's like it's not just one problem, but it's a lot of little problems that are gonna maybe contribute to a wider issue. And that's that's certainly, I'd say, some of my my hesitancy in terms of with that question, we could be here for so long discussing all of the various ways. And some of what's challenging is that it's just we haven't even I don't think I'm not aware that we've imagined all of the ways that these climate change impacts are going to affect us and the sort of the ways that we haven't thought about and the systems that we haven't realized will be impacted by them. If we continue as we're continuing and not really increasing our strategies, what might we see? Well, I think it's the kind of general scientific consensus that we will see an increase in the global average temperature and that that increase will be greater than 2.5 degrees Celsius on average from uh, pre-industrial levels. It's, it's tough. I'm, I'm very, (laughs) I'm mindful, you know, of how limited my, my brain and my mind is in terms of predicting and forecasting, because we've seen such huge changes already. And we're in a time of such great change for the good and the bad, I guess. Some of the trends that we've seen already that we can expect to see in the future is yes, continued extreme weather events and likely that they will become more extreme and more exacerbated. It would not be surprising at all to me to see increased levels of desertification, meaning, you know, land which was not uh, classified as desert becoming that, Um, some more of our arable land becoming degraded in terms of its ability to sustain us or or produce nutrients, food, those sorts of things, things that we would uh, rely on for our survival greater uh, social upheaval and polarization and volatility as some of the resources needed for our survival become more and more scarce. I mean, I'm sure people have heard of climate migration, but certainly, you know, I I don't have a crystal ball. I think the general thing is more that we recognize that human civilization hasn't existed under these planetary conditions that any of us are aware of. There's no recorded history of us having a civilization with an atmospheric concentration of this much carbon dioxide. So, I mean, it's it's important, I think, for people to understand that uh, these outcomes could be frightening. Certainly, I'm not trying to instill fear in people, but more getting people to recognize that this is an existential kind of crisis issue. We cannot continue as we have. But as you did point out, like there is work being done and there are groups developing programs and working on advocacy kind of projects. Keeping that in mind, like, is there anything that we are doing that is 
possibly working for mitigating climate change? Or is there anything that like we're working towards that could help us? Totally, totally. Yes. A ton of good work is happening. I think a big one, though, is education and literacy. That's something that's hugely important. And it's not always obvious. You know, it's not a, a, a direct kind of drawing carbon out of the atmosphere. But for instance, one of the things that has been uh, studied is educating women, uh, girls in other I'm thinking other countries, I mean, around the world, this is important, certainly. Um, but there's there's specific countries where, for instance, a woman would be, uh, historically, she would be married very young, and there would be a lot of pressure or a culture of her having children at a very young age. And there seems to be a relationship with having further education and literacy impacts the average amount of children that we're seeing being born from women in these situations and usually better health outcomes for those children that are being born and better health outcomes for the women themselves who are giving birth to these children. And that's something that could be really positive because I mean, humans, we have the capacity to really do a lot of damage. I'm using this word very generally, a lot of damage to the uh, biological and sort of chemical systems on, of this planet that we rely on. But we also have the capacity to do really beneficial things and support and bolster them. And I think education is very much tied in that because knowing that these systems exist is a very big part in us actually engaging and doing something about it. You know, knowing about a carbon cycle, about a hydrological cycle, about a nitrogen cycle. I don't think people realize how interconnected a lot of these things are. Like you talk about in education and how indirect of a path it is to mitigating climate change, but like it's a, there's multiple elements that need to be involved to make a big change, right? It's connected in so many ways, as you said, through these like different lenses and landscapes that people view the world. You know, it's got connections to technological issues, to social and political issues, to food and resource issues, to, to justice issues, you know. I had a professor, uh, his name was Jeffrey Sachs, and he was, he did some uh, kind of consultation at the UN, and he was, he was teaching a course that was, I think, called the, the Age of uh, Sustainable Development or Global Sustainable Development. And he introduced me to this concept of a wicked problem. And a wicked problem what is something that uh, arguably we're, we're facing a wicked problem or we're in a wicked problem. A wicked problem uh, doesn't have an agreed upon definition. It's not clear what it is. It can feedback on itself and get worse. It's not clear that there is a solution or any way to solve a wicked problem. It's a kind of mind-blowing concept. And I think it's important for people to be aware of just because, um, yeah, there's a very real possibility that we're in a wicked problem too. And this is something I think as someone who tries to be active, I think that's uh, something that's important to balance is, you know, trying to shape the future, trying to impact things, but also recognizing the, the limitations of my ability to impact the world, you know, that I'm also, <laughs> I'm impacted by these things, I'm connected to them. And, you know, I've got, I've got power, and I'm also powerless to, to some things um, trying to and I think that's an that's an ongoing, you know, that's an everyday sort of challenge and pr practice is trying to exist in the in this sort of world and find some, some harmony with that. <laughs> yeah, I, I hear that. Um, I keeping that in mind that, you know, it can be hard and you definitely feel powerless thinking about these global changes that might need to happen. But how can uh, we as individuals, you know, if we want to do something, what, what can we do? There are a ton of things that people can do. So, I mean, that is, that is definitely something that I'm, I'm, I'm hoping to, to spread that feeling of, you know, we are not powerless in <laughs> I'm using these, the, all these words fall short, you know, there's, there's different ways to view all these things, but we're not powerless in the sense that we're alive 
we have all of these faculties. We have so much that we can be appreciative of just as, as human beings on this planet. I mean, this, this life being alive right now is just, it's, a it's a wild and mysterious and fantastical ride. (laughs) Um, Besides all the, you know, the suffering and terrible brutality, the beauty and the awe and the mystery of it. I think that's, I think that's something that encourages me. And with regards to things we can do, I think that there really are, there's such a huge spectrum of things that we can do. And it really depends on you as a person in terms of what you feel is, uh, is right for you or what, what kind of uh, resonates with you. But some examples would be thinking about those um, different resources or chemicals that we rely on educating yourself about these systems that are oftentimes kind of behind the curtain, so to speak, you know, behind the label that we're very much reliant upon that we sometimes will not put much thought into learning about or don't really want to. I would encourage people to try to, you know, not to, to try to keep a learner's mind, so to speak. This is something I learned in martial arts, you know, the mind of a student that you you haven't, that you're just constantly open to possibility so that you can hopefully better understand what reality is that we're not so set in our ways that we miss out on what reality is. And so without being too meta and and, uh, wonky, maybe it's collecting rainwater off your roof. Maybe it's looking how you can make the systems that support you as a person and your family more circular. So that rainwater that I'm collecting off my roof I'm putting it into a little pond in the back uh, to support some of the wildlife, which will help attract certain predators, which will eat some of the pests that are eating some of my vegetable garden, which I'm also growing on site with some of that rainwater to feed some of my family. There's also, as an individual, maybe is doing things with other people is, I think, medicinal. I think it's good for our, our well-being in terms of as as whole people doing things with other people who are, uh, who care can be very, very good for us. And that could be things like engaging in your community. And I say that in terms of maybe it's, or sharing food with people who don't have access to food, uh, trying to help people who don't have access or have trouble trying to getting access to housing. Maybe it's, looking at a a certain wetland and these creatures who don't have, who aren't participating in the political system who are threatened, maybe it's advocating for them and advocating for their home. Because certainly another thing to remember is not to get so caught up that we just become human centric. I think a very important one, particularly for people living in this region around Brantford, uh, that would be to learn about the treaties and wampums that have been agreed upon and have been lived by for the people who wish to see movement towards reconciliation. I think it's really important to share that with others. And I think that it will help us mitigate climate change impacts. And I think that it will help heal our relationships with one another and the land itself which is important to do regardless. I also think that holding organizations like our government and corporations accountable for the immoral and unjust practices that they've engaged in is really important. And I say this with a sense that it wouldn't be so much centered or focused on shame and blame, but rather on responsibility and accountability. I think that's important to know. I mean, the community is so important. You can't do anything on your own. Like, even if you think about the way we live right now, the only reason we're here is because other people have been ahead of us working together to make the world the way it is currently. And yeah, and I think what you're saying about, you know, the education and learning piece, that's so important. And I'm definitely a believer of, um, you know, learning contributes to creativity and, you know, how can we come up with interesting solutions that will actually work if we're not creative beings? Yeah, I, I hear you. I hear you. And in that too, I mean, 
yeah, creating that feels like a, a medicinal thing too. I mean, we can create some pretty destructive and, and negative things use negative generally, but we have the capacity, you know, to create such wonderful and amazing things that can really nourish us, you know, as, as people and, and our physical bodies and, and nourish other, other living things on this planet. It's quite something. And yeah. And finding that, finding where we fit in that certainly I think is a, a continual, a lifelong practice. If you really want to talk about a lot of water, we can talk about glacial lake outburst floods. So these are something that happened at the end of the last ice age. Um, imagine a massive ice sheet over Hudson Bay and there being a lake that covers almost the entirety of Manitoba, parts of Saskatchewan and parts of North Dakota. So what happens as the ice sheet melts is there's now a path for all that water to drain and all of a sudden that lake, that massive lake, catastrophically drains within years. And so there's a massive amount of cold water that rushes into the oceans and it actually slows down the entire circulation in the oceans that then cools the climate. And it created something called the Younger Dryas, which is called the, a mini ice age. It, temporarily cooled the climate before it started warming again because of the massive amount of water. Um, some of these occur today, like there was one that happened in Iceland where a volcano erupted under a glacier and all the water melted. Its flow exceeded the Amazon and only ran for three days and then dried up completely. So these things have a, 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 the potential to release a massive amount of water over the landscape and completely change it. Huh. Wow. Like it kind of ties in with a lot of what I was talking about with Brody and in terms of, you know, there's this one event that happens and it kind of creates a ripple effect of other things changing as, as the water drains out and cools something down or kind of leads to something else, which leads to something else, which leads to something else, which is kind of what happened in 2018 in the sense of you know I think we had a lot of rain it was warm so there was a lot of ice melting and snow melting and then that caused the ice to break which caused everything to dam up <laughs> and it was just like all these little things that connected at the same time to cause the flooding yeah it was interesting how the ice jam caused all of that flooding and all of that to happen and it was such a surreal day where you know there was basically nobody on the street except the police walking up and down the street you know talking to people about evacuating it was something I never thought I would even you know live through or see happen something else too that I find interesting Nathan is what you were saying about how they're really not supposed to build in floodplains anymore and yet that is still happening I mean there's there's a development in Eagle Place that they're looking at doing this great big development over by Burkitt's Lane. Well, that's right in a floodplain. Um, that's going to basically be another mini neighborhood with almost the population of Eagle Place right in that location. So that's a lot of homes that are going to go right in a floodplain. I thought it was funny that when I read through that report as well, the, the school board built in, in the floodplain and they were told not to and they still did it, right? And it's, it's like public dollars going to these massive infrastructure projects as well, right? The other thing I was gonna say about that, you bring up a good point and they talk about people knowing if their house is in a floodplain or not. The Grand River Conservation Authority on their website, they have a map your property feature and it includes if your property is in the floodplain. So you can literally look and see at any property and you can know before you put an offer in on a house, whether it is in a floodplain or not. That information is publicly available for everyone. That's very cool. Everybody should be looking at that before they decide to choose to buy a house. Because if you live in a floodplain, you can't get flood insurance, you know. <laughs> like that's, that's another whole thing. Listening to the news about different areas in Canada that have been flooding, you know, in the past few years, when you look it up, it's a lot of these communities live along a river and they're living in the floodplain or they're, they're living in a place that used to be a lake and it was drained when we built dams or whatever, but it 
there used to be a, a lot of water there and, and now people are living there. So it shouldn't happen and it's still happening. And I think it's just going to become worse over the years as we have these weather events that kind of compound each other and make things worse overall. I think something that when I was talking with Dave Carroll that he brought up was how fortunate we were that everything was okay though, that, you know, really there wasn't a lot of damage or nobody really lost a whole lot. Everybody was okay. So I think that's, that's huge too. When looking back at, at the floods that have happened Mm -hmm. for us anyways, the, the 2018 one for sure. Yeah. That is actually like a really good success that you bring out. Like, um, you know, it wasn't as devastating as the 1974 flood. And I think we learned a lot of lessons from that flood as well. They put in more flood control structures, as well as the municipalities had money available to make improvements to the dikes. And that really helped in um, preventing Eagle Blaze, really, in particular, from having catastrophic in the uh, 2018 flood. The vulnerability is on Erie Ave there, where the dike crosses the road. And that's the area where if uh, Eagle Place were to flood, that's the one area where the water could come in. One thing that stuck out from your interview with Dave Carroll was how he said that it was a traumatic experience for the kids. And I'm sure other people as well, but he was talking about his kids specifically. And that's one thing that I don't know if we think about enough, because there's, you know, very interesting stories that come out of these kind of events, but they impact people for a long time to come. Even if you have your house back um, or your house wasn't impacted, you still have the experience of, you know, potentially having your life completely changed. And I don't know if we talk enough about the psychological impacts that these kind of events are going to have on people. Yeah, that's a really good point, Sula. I was just going to say every week, there's a week every year where it's emergency preparedness week. And they always talk about like, have you updated your kit? And this is what should go in your kit and everything. I have to admit, I'm one of those bad people. I probably don't have that stuff. It's when you, it's not like you, you don't think about it until a situation when you need it. And when you need it, you really need it. I I promise I will heed better attention next time in emergency preparedness week. I think that's a good point. I think we all should. I don't know, Zila, are you all ready? Because I know I'm not. So (laughs) when you were talking about um, running around and being like, oh, I got to grab the photo albums and things like that. It's interesting because those are actually like things that are on the emergency preparedness checklists are like, you know, make sure you have things that are easily accessible and ready to grab and go, including things like photo albums or, you know, in this digital age, maybe we should just digitize them and they're on the cloud (laughs) for you when you need them. So you're worrying about other things instead. Um, I took a first aid course and one of the things the first aider talked about was emergency preparedness. And it was, a little eye-opening. I mean, I was aware of some of the things, but one of the things that she pointed out that I kind of had never thought about is even just having cash on hand, because if things are really bad, you know, electronics won't work, ATMs will be down, you won't be able to access your banking. And on top of that, she specifically said, have like fives and tens, not like twenties and fifties, because no one's going to want to give you change. (laughs) That's a good point because nobody carries cash anymore, really. It's something you would have to actually plan to have and be prepared with. Yeah, especially if you're like moving from your home just to go to your parents' place or whatever, right? You need like that transportation. You know, you're safe once you get there, but it's the in-between. I just ran to grab my envelope. I do have two 20s and and I don't know when I actually took these out because it's been so long since I've used cash. Um, something that kind of stuck out to me too from this episode was the story that they would have to tell about the wedding during the flood and how, yeah. you know, like and after everything was, you know, okay or whatever, what an interesting story and a, what a memorable story that, that that wedding day will never be forgotten for that reason, right? So I thought that was quite neat. Yeah, who has a, like a wedding in the middle of a flood? Like the, <laughs> your house is surrounded by water. And then you're like, have everyone show up in boats and you just like, I guess that like, that's resiliency a little bit, I guess, right? You're like making the best of a bad situation. Of course that happened in Eagle Place. (laughs) Yeah. You hit the nail on the head there with the resiliency. Yes, we can be prepared, 
But in the end, you know, if you're prepared and you have to move away from wherever you're living and you have to rebuild, it's that resiliency like that's going to help us get through it and working with each other um, to rebuild and to rebuild and remember and improve for potential future issues, right? That's it for our seventh episode of For the Love of Brainford and our last episode for the season. But don't worry, we're already preparing for season two. If you have any ideas for season two, go on our website at brantfordlibrary.ca slash FLB to fill out our feedback form. Any and all suggestions are welcome. Thank you to Dave Carroll for sharing your evacuation story with us. And thank you to Brody for taking the time to talk about climate change. Thank you for listening to this episode of For the Love of Brantford. You can find all the episodes at brantfordlibrary.ca slash FLB, including the show notes where we list references, share images, and provide resources to continue your exploration of Brantford. We are your hosts, Mandy Samuel, Nathan Etherington, and Zila Ozels. This is a podcast in partnership with the Eagle Place Community Association, the Brant Historical Society, and the Brantford Public Library.